It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, February 8, 2008. I recently spoke with the founders of Heroku, a startup devoted to making Rails development, deployment, and scaling easier using cloud computing. They're recently given funding by Y Combinator. We talked about that and other issues at their offices in San Francisco. All right, so it's the Ruby on Rails podcast in San Francisco, offices of Heroku, James Lindenbaum, Adam Wiggins, Orion Henry. And you are doing a startup called Heroku. What is Heroku? Uh, well, uh, Heroku is, uh, a, uh, we hope, a new kind of platform for developing and deploying Rails applications. Uh, designed to be really, really, really easy, but also uh, pretty serious in terms of hosting and scaling. And at least when I saw it initially, it seemed like it had a lot of great features for new Rails users, in-browser editor, very web-based, click to install, deploy, all that kind of thing. Is that And that's part of your market, but maybe you have more than that in mind. Yeah, well, we've got really a really big vision for the long term. Um, you know, we were, of course, big believers in doing things iteratively. So what we built right now, our beta product, which is just a few months old, yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's great for people learning, um, for people that, um, you know, want to throw together an app quickly. I found it very useful uh, for personal apps where it's like, well, you know, I kind of wouldn't want to bother with all the trouble and set up to, to make an app that I'm just going to share with a couple friends to get it all and set up and deployed, but it's really convenient to be able to just do that in one button click. So that's where we are today. But we have a, a longer-term vision for um, building a, a more comprehensive deployment platform that solves a lot of the issues that people have had historically with Rails, and I think there's been discussion about that lately, the shared hosting, dream host stuff that was kind of going on, and it's just there's so many moving parts and so many pieces, but really we just want to get in there and, and write our apps, right? We want to start writing our business logic. And so um, we're hoping that we can help smooth over a lot of that, but also build up a lot of tools for, um, for uh, scaling and uh, making it easy to uh, have your application grow uh, along with your business or, uh, or as it grows. It seems like a lot of people look at different features or lack of features in Rails and think, okay, that's the reason that I'm not going to use Rails because maybe you know it's, it's hard to deploy. But for you, that was a business opportunity to get in there and provide something that fills that need and uh, you know build a business around that. Is that kind of how the thought went or why did you choose to get into that kind of space? We've, we've seen a lot of, I mean, everyone's seen a lot of energy and excitement around Rails. It, it provides a tremendous opportunity to do a lot of things to a lot of, for, for a lot of people. It, it has been just very difficult or, 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 or whatnot. And there's a much wider audience out there. But at the same time, we've noticed that this larger audience that's getting into Rails, you know, there's there's a lot of blocks. You know, the number of friends that I've personally had to like help them get my SQL set up on their local Windows box and things like that, just to get through the initial steps to get to the point where they could do some serious programming and write some interesting apps is, is enormous. Like I would I would suspect that for every Rails developer out there, there's five or six or seven who are getting caught up in the the getting into it phase. And then this and by smoothing out that 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 entryway path, we can increase the size of, of the Rails community dramatically. Um, by, by, by smoothing out some of those rough edges you run into at the very beginning of the process. I've always thought it, and even initially as an experienced developer, you know, I can compile Apache, uh, you know, set up 
Perl uh, scripts or fast CGI or whatever, and yet I still appreciated there was a development environment built into Rails, little self-contained web server, all that kind of thing. You've gone even kind of a further, one step further than that to where somebody can try it out and actually have it on a publicly accessible web server. Is the idea that people actually develop their entire site in the uh, browser-based tools that you offer, or is that kind of a starting point? Maybe some people will then sync that down to their local machine. You could do it either way. I mean, right now you can you can import and export to a tarball. Um, one of the features we have coming along really soon is going to be um, uh, revision control and external access, so that you can you can use other tools. I mean, yeah, we don't want to tell people where to develop. What we want to do is is provide an option, and then of course that's a highly complementary set of tools to the deployment side of things, which which includes managing your database, managing your production and staging environments. It includes merging between developers and managing collaboration and all of these sorts of things. And there's a lot of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of tie-in between those development tools and the sort of deployment side of things. As far as your question about whether or not you start out uh, running your app uh, on Heroku, I, I think the idea is that you we want you to be able to, right? If you want to do that, uh, to be able to start there without... Uh, Without having any local tools at all, I mean, even, even without a, a good code editor, you can you can start in. Um, but also that uh, we don't we don't want you to be forced down that path. We want people to be able to use their local tools. So yeah, external access to Subversion and Git and all that stuff. Uh, those are those are features that we have coming very shortly and have been uh, uh, often asked for. Uh, so we don't it's, we you know we don't want to have any kind of uh, lock in. We want it to be really easy to get in or out of using the, the Heroku sort of platform, and then. Uh, you know, obviously, the deployment side of things. Well, we have a lot of flexibility because you know we've, we've made a lot of decisions for the user. You know, we've we've we've, we've uh, configured their Rails setup out of the box with you know Mongrel and the R spec. We picked their database for them. We've set it up. We've created the permissions and the access and everything like that. So we can do a lot of things that other uh, companies who provide you know application deployment can't necessarily automate for you. We, in a normal situation, you know, you've got your app, you set it up, maybe you put it on a slice host type of thing, or maybe you're thinking, oh man, this might go big, we're going to get hit by a dig, or there's going to be some huge influx of users, so we need to you know, get two or three or four big iron servers and set things up and configure them and spend months doing that, and then you're using 1% of the, of the hardware that you purchased waiting for that spike of activity, and when it finally does come, maybe it's bigger than you were expecting and you end up, you end up crashing and burning anyway because you didn't properly anticipate the amount of load that you're going to get. Given that you know we're we're on an elastic compute cloud to begin with, and we have you know set up all the system administration stuff um, by making those choices for you, we have the flexibility of, of allowing you to start off with just a minimal amount of hosting, and then as traffic comes, we can scale the app, we can start additional mongrels, we can migrate your database to a bigger to a bigger beefier box, and uh, and, and, and give you an unprecedented ability to not care how much traffic you're eventually going to get because you could, you know, like utility pay for it as you use it and know that your app can potentially scale elastically up to whatever amount. You're not going to have to like be psychic and guess how much bandwidth you're going to have to pre-buy and how much process power you're going to have to pre-buy in order to handle that. So we're envisioning a, a sort of best of all worlds type of scenario where when your app is little and you're just screwing around with your friends, you know, you, you're, 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 you're not, you know, it's either free hosting or you're not paying very much for it. And then as your app goes bigger, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to like migrate to a different scenario or a different setup or get bigger servers. Uh, you can just pay for it as you use it. And that's a whole different paradigm of, uh, for, for how to deploy applications that we have sort of the luxury with these new tools and these uh, these these new uh, resources to be potentially be able to offer people. 
So you can scale all the way up, not just for beginners, but you know, larger full-scale sites as well. And then, and then once you mix in the, the developer tools, the fact that you can have diff lots of different instances of the app running and have version control and sharing patches with different people um, and, and cloning and forking apps to, to work on them in different environments, you potentially have something that's accessible and useful for the newbies, something that's powerful and good hosting for real, real companies and has all the tools already baked in that, that real development teams are going to want in order to collaborate with each other inside the cloud or with their external tools on their local machines. So there's a lot of, a lot of flexibility a lot of really groundbreaking flexibility that we're able to sort of bake into this by having created our own uh, stack of pre-integrated tools. Because we're based on EC2, uh, we, we get some of that same benefit for ourselves where uh, we can offer people, we can offer our users the ability to scale their apps up uh, pretty substantially uh, without uh, us ourselves having to you know, predetermine our, our server resource needs. Uh, so we can actually let somebody, you know, create a new application and be on a, you know, a very, very, you know, scaled down stock. Maybe it's, uh, you know, their database is on a, you know, medium density shared uh, database server and they've got, you know, uh, a couple of mongrels or, or whatever. Uh, and then as traffic increases, we can dynamically live scale them to, to, you know, more mongrels, more machines, dedicated instances, dedicated database server. Uh, and now Amazon has some offers, some features that allow us to do some vertical scaling as well. So you can actually increase the you know size of the instance that your your, your processes are running on. A term we've been kind of using internally for this, and, and, and maybe we'll hope we'll uh, catch on elsewhere, is uh, liquid scaling. So that refers to the fact that you're not thinking in terms of discrete units, like what boxes do I need to buy, or what boxes, you know, in the case of, of EC2, what, what instances do I need to provision? It's just a matter of we are dynamically and automatically figuring that out for you on the back end according to the load that your app is under. So it's being scaled for you kind of transparent, more, mostly transparently, um, and in a way that is, you know, to you, you just see it as resource usage. You don't see those discrete units as of here are the servers that I'm using. And, and in that way, it's definitely very inspired by uh, Amazon's stuff, what they're doing with, with obviously with EC2, with S3, and also with uh, their latest... SimpleDB, which is that very the metered resource usage. You don't think in terms of the discrete units. You think in terms of here's how much I spent. It's like my electricity bill or it's like my phone bill. Here's the resources I use. I pay for just those. That's it. And we, we really want to take it a step further. You know, we think the, the EC2 on-demand model is awesome. Uh, you're no longer having to select, pre-select. You know, how many servers you want, what kind of configurations you want, all that stuff. Uh, now you're just talking about how many server instances you want, but you still have to decide how many server instances you want. We want to actually go beyond that to where you're just running your application, queries are served, you know, requests are served quickly, and you don't really know or care uh, how many actual discrete units of Amazon resources are being used. All you care about is, you know, how much work that was to get done. It's kind of we really like the electric company analogy, right? You're billed by kilowatt hours, and I don't know about you, but I have no idea what I'm charged per kilowatt hour. I don't even know how many kilowatt hours I used last month, but that's how I pay. I mean, that's the metric by which we're all charged, but you just have this sort of vague sense that, okay, so, you know, if I leave all my lights on all month, it'll be more expensive, and if I don't, it'll be less expensive, and we don't really care that much what the numbers are because we have this sort of ballpark understanding of how much it costs, and it's, it's, it's uh, at a price point where we're not particularly concerned about it. Another interesting side effect of that whole thing is is that the, 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 the reason you want to go in and like optimize your queries and speed up your pages and do caching and, and add indexes to your database is to lower your bill. 
because you're going to be using a lot less compute resources uh, if, if you make your application more efficient. So, so right, writing a slow app means that it costs more instead of just that it crashes and burns as soon as it gets. gets yeah, it's definitely a distinctly different thing. If you if you write a piece of Ruby that's uh, that's very poor performance wise, or you know queries that are poor, uh, in in the current scenario, you're basically going to hit a limit at some point where you just can't actually support the the traffic because it's because of the performance. Whereas uh, with this model, you actually theoretically can to up to any level. It's just instead of optimizing to be able to run at all, you're going to optimize just to decrease your, your resource cost, uh, which we think is kind of the future of uh, uh, sort of the direction of, of infrastructure. Now, it seems like this might also have implications for how applications are written. If I have a couple of VPSs right now, and let's say I want to do some kind of page caching, I'm going to have to use the distributed page caching plugin or kind of organize that is the way that Heroku deployments happen going to kind of gloss over some of those problems to where okay I just knew that I you know cached this page to the disk and it's on the cloud so it's all synchronized or will developers still have to think about some of those issues I think, I think there's both there's 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 both of those things as much as possible we want to make things sort of automatic where we take the common cases and we, you know, things like when you click create, create my app, it does all the stuff you normally need to do when you create an app. It creates your database, creates your test database, you know, gets everything set up, uh, you know, adds, adds the right files to revision control, sets the right things for ignore, all that kind of stuff. Wherever we can, we want to make sure that we try to automate those the things that you always need to do. Um, on the other hand, yeah, you're at, every app is, is different. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, you could use different plugins, and you know you can use different uh, uh, different different schemes for how your how your app is is actually running. And so you know, there's certainly we're not intending to replace necessarily the developer's knowledge of how their app runs. What we're hoping to do is make it a lot easier, particularly for the common cases. With the page caching example, I think uh, I think that's a good example. We certainly don't want to prevent you from from page caching, obviously. Uh, and I, I think I think in our model, uh, what will happen is you don't have to be concerned about page caching, right? It's not necessary because uh, if you don't cache the pages, even if they're heavy, uh, you, we will scale it for you so that your requests can be served quickly. But it's probably wise in terms of resource usage to to page cache so that you, you burn less work, right? And we're, you know, and exactly how we're gonna how we're going to uh, to price this is is something we're still talking about. But we certainly uh, know that. We, we want to charge based on how much work it takes uh, the the infrastructure to deliver uh, a page for a request. I, th I think we have a lot of opportunity, though, with our stack of, of tools to offer um, sort of like certain certain common problems being pre-solved. For instance, uh, with the Heroku logins, you know, you you, you already have people, a lot people already have Heroku accounts that they already have their 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 logins, their cookies set, and things like that. We offer. Um, you the, the easy capability when people come to your site to see who, if they're logged in via Heroku and if so as who so you could potentially use our login page instead of writing your own login page and have that infrastructure already sort of like built out for you and you know we have a lot of other opportunities to uh, as we're as we're developing this to find other tools that that we can uh, you know make 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 decisions on to to sort of build into our cloud build into our stack and it's the same model as as Rails right I mean it's convention over configuration you. 
you are trying to provide conventions that already exist so that if there's if you're trying to do something uh, simply or you're trying to just get it done in the easiest possible way or sort of best practices way, hopefully it's just already done for you. It's already baked in. But we don't, at the same time, we don't ever want to prevent you from doing anything or, or, or interfere. So like the Heroku user thing is a great example because it's, it's built in from the beginning. You, you create a little application, then suddenly you've got a couple people collaborating on it. And let's say, let's say it's a wiki, you've got a couple people collaborating, and now you want to start storing usernames. Uh, you could just tap into the Heroku user information, since these, these guys are already logging into your application, um, and, and you're done. You don't have to deal with authentication and that whole, uh, that whole realm. But at the same time, you could just ignore it and build your own authentication system and then you know, switch the app onto uh, you know, public. Uh, so it's, uh, the idea is to give you uh, tools that make it really easy to get started, but also uh, not to limit your, your capabilities in any way. Now, maybe I'll ask about this later, but Orion and Adam, you started Trust Commerce a number of years ago. Is there going to be any kind of similar service built in as far as financial, maybe even hooked up to Amazon, uh, simple payment service, that kind of thing with these other Amazon services, making those available to Heroku customers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we're still in the early stages here, so there's a lot of uh, dreamy-eyed, uh, sort of like you know, d- uh, or starry-eyed dreaming of up of features, uh, of course, which we're which we're really enjoying. But but a few of the things is is offering some some really easy access, for example, asset storage in S3 and being able to to serve things up really really easily. Um, uh, and something like payment processing, and that's a whole area that that, as you said, I, we do have a background. In that, Orion and I, our first uh, company that we founded was Trust Commerce. We did that for for a few years, and um, that's a, that's a whole realm you got to be careful of. Now, Amazon has a has a payments uh, system that they've they've come up with. I haven't looked at it closely, but you know if it's if it's similar to uh, S three as far as making it it really easy with with a good API, you know we might want to provide a, a cleaner. Uh, face to that, a more a more Ruby friendly one that follows better conventions. You know, Amazon makes great infrastructure, but then they have these quote REST, you know, APIs. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, it's not like we're we're loading up soap objects or something. I mean, but still, as far as uh, being sort of like, you know, it doesn't it doesn't feel right when you interface to them, and and that's like a convenience that I would like to think that we we would be providing would be an easy interface to that stuff that sort of like wraps it in Ruby conventions wraps it in Rails conventions and is just available just out of the box. It's just sitting there, sitting there waiting for you. It's not like you need to install anything. It's not like you need to set anything up. You can just start using it immediately. Well, one of the benefits we can provide there is, you know, aside from, you know, that, that stuff you could potentially do with a, any kind of open source project. You know, you can have a plug-in that, that uh, provides you a nice uh, wraparound API for something like um, payment service or, or S3 storage. But what we can do in addition is because because we're already on that infrastructure and we already have our credentials with Amazon, we can make it really easy for somebody who's just building an app for the first time or just starting up, doesn't necessarily already have their own S3 and Amazon credentials and S3 accounts and all that, to just start storing assets in S3 through our service. So we'd be providing both the really easy uh, path coding-wise and also handling the, the, you know, the sort of the billing and all that stuff is already, already taken care of. But at the same time, again, you wouldn't be locked in. You could always just... You can, I mean, at any time, you can open your own S3 account and, and hook it into your Rails app in any way that you see fit. So. Avoiding lock-in, obviously, is a, is a huge concern in the course of this era of uh, you and your own data. You know, and here we're, we're talking, I mean, this is developing applications in the cloud. This is, this is, this is one of the most critical kinds of data that I can, that I can think of. Um, if you're building an app that runs a, runs a business, 
um, and you're spending years building up the business logic and building up your database and all that, I mean, that is, that is yours, and we're certainly um, going to make sure that we uh, treat it as such at, at absolutely all times. Now, this isn't the first business that you've started, but you're going to be benefiting from uh, Y Combinator advice, collaboration, a little bit of funding. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, well, we, uh, we, we're part of the, uh, the current uh, Y Combinator uh, batch. You know, they do these, these uh, biannual uh, batches or semi-annual batches. And uh, should we mention what Y Combinator is for, for people that aren't? Yeah, I don't know how if Y Combinator is, is uh, right. well known. I mean, twenty second executive summary here. Uh, they're a um, a sort of a pre seed um, funding firm, uh, and they're they're basically their their key founders, Paul Graham, who uh, I don't know. I, I've been reading his essays for years, um, and, and the guy obviously knows a lot about both business and technologies and startups in Silicon Valley. Um, and he's brought together a lot of people who uh, have a lot of knowledge and expertise in that world to build up a, um, uh, basically, and, and when they have these batches, these sessions of startups that they identify or, or, uh, and participate and all sort of support each other in the process of um, going from uh, just a dream to, uh, to a real company. So a lot of, it seems like a lot of Rails hosting companies have been able to just be profitable right away, there's demand, the services are available, people want it. Do you see why Combinator's kind of, uh, just kind of the advice until the uh, company becomes profitable, or do you see that as a step to maybe future funding? Uh, well, they definitely try to help with future funding uh, and advice. You know, you get sort of, there's sort of two halves there. Uh, you know, with why Combinator, you get their specific advice, you know, the, the, the advice and, and interaction with, with Paul Graham and his partners. Um, as well as uh, their sort of network uh, of people, uh, both uh, on the East Coast and especially here uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, which is definitely helpful both for uh, advice of all kinds, technical, uh, entrepreneurial, and uh, you know, financial. Uh, and then the other half of it is the, uh, the very uh, now large and growing uh, group of sort of Y Combinator alumni. Uh, so there's you know, there are a lot of people now who've been through this program in the last few years, and uh, they all have a sense of uh, wanting to help each other wherever possible. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a it's a good group, it's definitely a good thing to do. Um, I'm sure there, there's somewhat of a uh, you can almost think of a support support group for uh, entrepreneur technical entrepreneurs, which is just you know it's it's as much fun as it is to build startups, and we usually talk about the fun parts. That's also really hard, and there's a lot of tough times, and there's a lot of mistakes to be made. And having just people that are going through it at the same time as you, or people that have gone through it just prior to you, uh, and can can you can sort of like speak to and get support, and uh, just share you know what you're what you're going through, and and uh, get their feedback. That's really powerful. You know, me and me and Ryan have had a couple of companies together prior to this. We were always going it alone, and um, yeah, it's, it's hard when you hit those hard spots, which you always do. You always do. You always hit those tough times, and when there's no one around you that knows what you're going through or, or, or can, can really comment um, on or, or, or can give you any feedback, it makes it harder. So having having those people there to support you is, is it really makes a big difference. Speaking of which, uh, Ryan and Adam, you started Trust Commerce a number of years ago. It's one of your first startups, and that was quite an ambitious thing: financial, credit card processing. 
recurring payments, making a step toward making that a little bit more palatable to the developer at least. Why did you choose to go for something like that in your in your first company because that you tried to start? Because we had no idea just how ambitious it was. Okay. The foolishness of naivety of, or, or, or the benefit of that was we didn't we didn't know that it you know it couldn't be done and so then that didn't prevent us from trying to do it. And then by the time we figured out that it was really not doable, we'd already done it. Um, which honestly that's you can say that probably for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think you know, if you knew how hard it was when you set out to do it, maybe you would never do it. Um, but the thing is, by throwing yourself at the problem, you actually learn to do it. Um, and um, so, yeah, that was that was a fun one. You know, that was a few years back, and we, we did some groundbreaking things. You know, the, obviously, the banking industry is not well known for um, high tech, uh, and partially that's uh, just the nature of the, the business. Uh, and partially, it's just that it's a highly regulated industry. But we were able to do a few things with. A, uh, some uh, geographically distributed processing nodes that were pretty cool, and we got to open source our client software. Which I tell you what, that was at the time, you know, 2001. Open source client software from a payment processor was nearly unthinkable. Um, it, it was also a lot of fun at the time, just because there, did, there didn't there wasn't a very uh, active presence of the hack community in the banking industry. So we were, you know, turning a lot of heads at that point. I remember there was an expected three to six month integration time with Visa's network uh, on the technical level to get hooked into their their system. And uh, I think Adam did it in overnight. Was it like twenty four hours, twelve hours? It was, it was, it was a couple of days. Immediately, <laughs> it, it, immediately, it was. It was I think it was a Friday. You started on like a, a Friday night, and you were ready Monday morning. And um, you know, called into their their tech center, worked out five or six bugs over over an hour, and then we were done. And then the next thing we knew, you know, we were we were getting you know people from Visa and Mastercard and Vital and and uh, even General Motors were trying to figure out who we were and what we were up to and what, what was going on because that was just unheard of. And that's the hacker ethic, right? You just get in there and you do it. Like, show me the code. And like, to, that we came from that world and so that was not, we didn't think of that as being something special, but it's amazing outside of our sort of like little, little um, you know, bubble of, 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 of tech people and hackers, that's, a, that's an unusual approach. You know, it takes people by surprise. Especially anything financially related, yeah. people are really intimidated <laughs> yeah. and you were saying earlier that for banks themselves, there's no motivation to make all these drastic changes. They want to Absolutely. keep it reliable, consistent. And, and, and you know, one of the big things we did with that um, with that business, and I, I now realize I see kind of a parallel with Heroku just as I'm sitting here thinking about it, is, is we wanted to take the payment interfaces, which were just horrendous. You know, it's like this position-based character format. You know, encode your thing in EBCDIC. There's a bunch of stuff in there that was designed for, you know, wasn't designed for TCP with with guaranteed delivery. You were putting in like ACK packets and things like that manually, and you know, it just was so difficult to do because the the, the interface was so you know obtuse. It had been designed 20 years ago. And part of what we did there was we put a nice wrapper around it. We had this, you know, we had bindings for all these different languages where it's just very simple: name, address, credit card number, expiration date. Send, what's my result? You know, that's it. And of course, that seems like a no-brainer, I'm sure, to anyone that's, that's listening to this, but that, that wasn't obvious to, to the banks. They thought, well, there's all these complicated fields and we need to whatever, and they have these, you know, 150-page specifications, and uh, that was part of what we took pride in, was wrapping up this complex thing in a simple, in a simple interface. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's part of what we're doing here, too, kind of like what we talked about with Amazon stuff or whatever, where we take, we take a, a more complicated interface and we try to present a, you know, a, a cleaner, simpler front. And to me, that's that's the Ruby way. That's the Rails way. 
taking something complicated and making it simple is actually harder and more elegant and more of a challenge, um, but also has a lot of benefit than just saying, well, it's complicated, so it has to have a complicated interface, you know? So maybe you should put user interface designer on your your uh, business card. Well, you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking in, the, in, in terms of that, when I talk about user interface, the user interface I'm talking about is the developer interface, like an API. And I do think that they're related, and that's something I've had some debates about. You know, as, as, a, as a command line guy and a Linux guy for many, many years, I feel that the same user interface stuff that applies to a web page or a GUI app applies to the command line. You know, the, the, it should be discoverable. It should be obvious. The common cases should be, should be clear-cut. Um, and um, that's certainly something I think Linux has done very well, um, particularly in recent years compared to like sort of more traditional Unix, is taking those, taking commands and making them have a better user interface. And, and people don't usually talk that way about command line stuff, but I think it's just as relevant, you know. Just because you're interfacing in this language style format versus, you know, point and click, it doesn't mean those things don't apply. Um, so hopefully, you know, anything that we do, even when we're, we're building a developer tool, it's a developer tool with a good user interface, and that doesn't just mean pretty graphics, although uh, pretty graphics are certainly everyone enjoys, but it also means something that is that is very readable and understandable. And of course, obviously, Rails has been huge inspiration for us on that. You know, that it's, it's hope, we we hope we like to think we're just continuing that same direction, going into other areas, including you know deployments and these other add-on tools. You also mentioned that with working with Trust Commerce, you did a lot of work to make it scalable and reliable. A lot going on behind that nice yeah. developer user interface to make sure that things went through reliably, and even if servers were down, that other ones would uh, be able to take their place. Uh, do you think that yeah. kind of you didn't do that in Rails, but is that going to help how you develop Heroku? Oh yeah, I mean the the, the lessons we learned doing that are are, are huge, and, and and we're doing that. Here as well, and and you know honestly, a lot of you know there's 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 a stuff in Heroku already that's written in C, Nginx modules and stuff like that. And the fact that we have that back end knowledge, and Ryan here is uh, is really a wizard when it comes to the the you know the hardcore Unix stuff and getting in there and really um, you know uh, dealing with resources and you know tracking tracking jiffies in the kernel to figure out some utilization and uh, managing processes and um, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're doing on the back end, and, and, and yeah, I would say that we could, we really cut our teeth uh, on that, and 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 also some stuff we did in college as well, and that sort of hardcore system administration stuff is going to allow us to I hope build something that's really really scalable, reliable, and fault tolerant in the same way. It's particularly applicable to EC2 as well because uh, you know EC2 is designed to be on-demand resources, but uh, they're volatile. You know, you're not you're not guaranteed uh, involatile resources, so. You know, servers can disappear at any time. They can go down. Uh, things can wedge, and and you can't just launch. An, well, you shouldn't anyway. Just launch an instance uh, on EC2 and treat it as if it were a dedicated server at, at some host. So even just just being able, even if you didn't want to scale, just being able to get on EC2 and have a reliable, redundant system uh, requires uh, thinking uh, in that style of architecture. Yeah, you, you you have to have an architecture that doesn't have any problem dealing with and recovering from a situation where one or multiple machines could disappear at any moment, which just means you've got to think about the problem differently, build redundancy into it in a different way, uh, you know, take care of when and where you're storing things and how, and it's 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 quite a fun problem to tackle actually. Okay, interesting conversation, but I'll stop it with one more uh, one more topic here. You also mentioned that uh, you see. And others have seen a 
style of making companies, even developing software, being more like the movie industry. You each movie is almost like its own startup. You bring in a team, you do a project, and then the team disbands. Maybe you have the same actors or directors or set designers come back in. How has that played a role in uh, in what you're doing with Heroku? Well, I, I wouldn't say it has yet because right now we're just uh, it's just us. We haven't we haven't brought on any other uh, any other people. But uh, but I'm I I personally for for me that's a. I feel like the way that sort of you know corporate America and big big companies do things is um, is inefficient and sort of not a lot of fun for everyone involved. The sort of the long term employee and yeah, the the movie industry has a really interesting model if you look at that. Uh, kind of like you described, you know, for each each movie is its own legal entity. Uh, the director or whoever gets together their team, they they pick them out. They're paid as freelancers for the work that they do, and then when the project's over, they disband. And when they when they go to do the next project, which there's always a next project, then the then whoever's putting the team together says, "Hey, who was really awesome last time around?" And we get this guy again, and this guy again, and this guy again. If you look at you know you look at the directors like say Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith or some of these guys, you notice they use some of the same actors again and again. And if you probably look at the credits, you see they're they're using their, the guys you know behind the cameras again and again as well because. You know, that's that to me is a better model that has more. It's it's less about okay, I'm going to do my interview, and once I get past that sort of initial hurdle, I'm in for life. You know, and then you got all these deadweight employees or whatever, and it seems like it's sort of bad for the company and it's bad for the employees that you have this that like the relationship to me just doesn't seem like it's as good as a team that gets together and says, hey, we've got a goal. Here's what the goal is. Let's do it. We'll all get paid according to what we do. And then when the goal is done, we'll like regroup and see if we want to do something else. Agile business and iterative team design. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I, and I think you're seeing that, you know, in the and, and part of it is in the last century. And, and here I'll try not to stray too far. I'm kind of an economics geek, so this is this is a favorite topic of mine. But in the last century, um, you know, you saw that companies getting bigger and bigger was and getting economies of scale and pulling together large capital resources. That's how they were able to be the most do the most valuable results for, for society, and that was a trend, is, is companies getting bigger and bigger and standardization and all that kind of stuff. Now I think what we're seeing with um, some changes in technology and changes in the business world is that smaller firms are actually better because they have the agility, they have the, the ability to keep up with the changes, they have the innovation, they have the, they have the people that are more motivated to, to, uh, to do the really interesting things. So what you're finding is those big firms are having trouble uh, I think competing as much, and so what I'm hoping to see is um, a world where there's m- many s- smaller companies and people working as freelancers, and, and a lot more independent agents that are interacting, providing value to each other. You know, paying. You know, money is changing hands according to hopefully mostly according to the value that's being provided, and in each person that's that participates is much more in control of their own destiny and is deciding where they want to do go, what projects they want to do, and that's true of the individual. Uh, the individual companies as well, and you get less of that monolithic bureaucracy, huge, you know, and everyone kind of like wedges in there, and they're like, "All right, I'm in my comfort zone, and now I just got to hang on for 40 years till I retire," you know. So, I don't know. And it seems like a lot of different factors are coming in to make that possible. As a startup, a freelancer, a small business, you have access to things like all the Amazon Web Services give you unlimited storage and UPS good is credit really, card. UPS. UPS is another really good example of, of, some, of a company that's allowing small companies to behave like large companies. Uh, flat, world is flat, that whole, that whole thing. 
and it's just it's just a lot easier now to compete with big companies. Google AdWords, UPS, Amazon EC2, lots of things that you needed, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of cash on hand in order to in order to get into certain markets. And all of those are great example of metered services because it used to be for any infrastructure you needed, if you needed to, you know, you needed to move packages from A to B, or you needed payment processing, or you needed servers, you had to first lay down a bunch of capital. You had to figure out what you were going to need, try to predict the future, lay down a bunch of capital, and just to get started, just to even just get your foot out the door. Now you can say shipping one package with UPS, or processing one payment with PayPal, or you know, setting up a server for one day on, on, on Amazon, or of course now hopefully uh, building your, your app on Heroku, you just pay you can just pay the you know the ten bucks to ship the package with UPS or the, the two bucks to put to put, put up the instance with, with Amazon and then you can build iteratively from there forward. There isn't that upfront investment. And that's gonna create agility not only in existing firms, but people starting new things. They can experiment, they can start small, and they can grow upwards, and there's no benefit, uh, or, or there isn't such an overwhelming benefit to being a large company that is able to, to start with a large capital investment. Well, in, a, in an economic sense, I think it's all about uh, specialization, right? I mean, that's really what it is. All this efficiency comes from specialization. It comes from decoupling these different layers, you know? So, uh, you know, Amazon's a good example because all the, uh, or, or, or supposedly, all the infrastructure that uh, is now available as Amazon Web Services, or at least what they started with, was infrastructure they had to build for themselves anyway just to provide their, their actual you know, main line of business. It's the same thing here. Um, you know, I, I think the more those layers get separated, people, groups, and, and entities specialize in providing one particular layer of the solution, uh, you know, the, the, the more efficient that is for everyone. And then that's how these smaller businesses get that access to that economy of scale. And that's, that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide uh, that, that same economy of scale for, uh, for Rails apps that, that you get for uh, shipping UPS packages. Yeah. yeah. I think it's awesome that you know, if you go and you set up a, one server for one hour with Amazon's EC2, you'll get a bill for 10 cents. There's no startup fee. There's no like minimum fee. There's no, it's just like 10 cents to get a server. I mean, that's just like, it almost seems laughable, but, but that's, that's the metered resource model. And that's, I think, when, one of the things that's going to be so enabling for businesses. It has been for us. We're, we're hoping to turn around and provide that to other people, which is there's, there's no such thing as too small. There's no such thing as a minimum level of entry. Well, there's also there's the, the other side of that, which is uh, being able to scale up in such an unlimited way. You know, I've got my, my, for my personal, you know, I, I, I've done some things, uh, some personal projects where I've played around with uh, EC2. Um, uh, for example, uh, a while back I was playing around with the uh, Netflix price. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, trying to trying to uh, provide Netflix. recommendations, right? And, and it's this fairly large uh, linear algebra problem, and you want to crunch some numbers on it. So I hop on my EC2 account and I start up literally a dozen, two dozen instances uh, to work in parallel on this problem, right? And, they, and I just run a couple dozen instances for you know several hours, and that's it. And, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, that, that, that cost me, you know, 50 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever. And I got that bill at the end of the month. And that was it. So I had access to, you know, 25 machines working 100% on, on my problem for four hours. Uh, and all I paid for was that, that metered time. I didn't have to uh, have, you know, there's no monthly fee. There's no, uh, there's just no, there's no transaction cost at all. And that's great for small businesses. And then obviously, you know, the open source angle. Uh, being able to pay for your infrastructure and whatever else you need uh, that are based on real costs uh, in a metered way 
plus, uh, you know, not having to pay licensing fees. You know, there, there was an era when you, you, in order to use a framework like Rails, you had to license it from a, a big company. When we started, when we started Trust Commerce, this was two thousand. We needed a SQL database. You know, it was like okay, so that'll so we just need to plump plump down, plump down fifty thousand bucks, and then you can you can store your first row. And it was just like, whoa, man, you know. And, and we ended up um, uh, picking up Postgres, which at the time had just started to get mature enough for for uh, serious production use. And you know, boy, boy, we were really, really, <laughs> we were really happy about that. You know, the days of paying for your web server, I remember that. You know, you pay for the Netscape web server. I don't remember what that was called. If you wanted to serve a web page, pay for your operating system. You know, and it's just it, it, it had less to do with the cost and more to do with the. Uh, the, the obstacle that put in your path. You wouldn't just throw up a quick server. You wouldn't just throw together a quick app because you got to pay so much just to start. You know, you're not going to do it unless you're 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 pretty. You know, you, you got something pretty serious going on. The world that loses a lot of economic value when people can't just dive in and start doing it. The Rails Podcast is sponsored by Peep Code Screencasts. There's a new PDF on active merchant payment processing. Hosting by Rails Machine.